This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of lots of talk of labor issues in the city of Hamilton over the last few days and weeks. We had CUPE who was negotiating. Uh, they had taken a strike vote, although they have now reached a deal, uh, a tentative deal. Uh, CUPE workers, so a number of uh, something like 3,000 city unionized workers are going to be having a presentation with what the deal that they have, the tentative deal is. That's tomorrow they'll be having this meeting and then voting on Friday whether to accept. But there's another union that is also now still in negotiation, still without a deal. That is the HSR workers, the HSR drivers and others. Uh, and last week they took a strike vote. We we talked to their um, president of their local, Eric Tuck, last week. I want to bring Eric back on today. Eric, how are you this morning? Good morning, Scott. How are you doing this morning, Eric? Hello. Hi, Scott. Good oh, morning. There we go. Sorry, Eric. I'm having a hard time hearing you. So I um, last week when you took your strike vote and then announced that it was a 99% uh, in favor of a strike, I, I was stunned by that number. Were you surprised it was that high? I was surprised, Scott. That's the uh, the highest number we've ever had in a strike vote in, in my 35-year history here. So, uh, yes, we were somewhat shocked. Uh, but not that surprised when you look at the, the employer's latest position. For us, uh, many of my members were clearly upset, and they were expressing their anger through that vote. Okay, so why why do you think, you say they were upset, why do you think they were upset enough to drive it up to a 99% rate? What what's What is driving that anger? So so I'd have to say one of the leading drivers, obviously, is uh, wages. We were looking for a fair wage increase uh, in, over this next four years. Uh, many of my members have lost money over the last two years. Due to inflation, as you know, inflation last year was around 7%. We got a 1.5% uh, increase. The year before, it was about 5%, and again, we were 1.75. Uh, so we lost money in the last two years to inflation. And in fact, if you look over the last 10 years, we've lost significantly uh, in, as far as our buying power with wages. Uh, then you look around you at the, the cost of housing, uh, fuel for gas going back and forth to work, uh, food, everything is going up, and obviously our wages need to keep pace with inflation. Um, earlier in the year, our employer gave a wage increase to non-unionized staff. Uh, they have received a, a average wage increase of about 4%. These are non-union staff members, for example, a project manager earning anywhere from 120000 to 160000 and I'll remind you, many of them are working the hybrid model, so they're working from home two to three days a week. They all got a 4% wage increase. In addition to that, they also received a market adjustment for the cost of living, somewhere between 1% and 11%. So on average, many of those uh, uh, non-union staff received wage increases in the double digits. Uh, and my members who've been here every day working on the front line uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, we were the ones that were out there doing the work, and we are told that we're not entitled to that kind of an increase. We're being, you know, greedy and asking for 
a fair wage increase that keeps pace the, similar to the ones that they receive. Okay. And my members are just saying that's not acceptable. I, I want to just ask you about that because I know that publicly um, there have been reports that you're looking for 7%. I know you have not said you're looking for 7%, but is it a fair, even if you are not going to say what exactly you're looking for, is it a fair assumption on our part that that 4% you're talking about is at least in the ballpark of where you are? I would, I would definitely say that's the base we want to work from. The, I mentioned off the top that CUPE uh, has a tentative agreement now. I don't know. Uh, I've not been in negotiations with, with unionized workers for the city or whatever else. Do you and Jay Hunter, who's their president and their guy who is doing negotiations, do you talk with Jay to find out what they got to have some sense of how this could work with the city? Are you in contact with him? Yes, yeah, so um, there's there's three or four uh, units, bargaining units that are in uh, talks right now with the city to get a collective agreement. We've all been in contact and communicating back and forth. Yes. So does that mean that um, so they they they've got their assuming their tentative agreement gets signed and we don't know that yet. We'll find out Friday. But let's say that happens. Let's jump ahead and say that happens. Does that affect what the other bargaining groups do? Would that then? drive the discussions of, okay, they got this, we should get that as well? Or is it, or is it completely apples and oranges? So, so first of all, I would say that it is somewhat apples and oranges. We have to look at transit uh, across the province uh, for our sector. And obviously, QP is a different sector. QP, it's a little more difficult. You got to remember half of them, are, their members are administrators who work in inside. Um, and they're uh, also, many of them are working on hybrid models. Um, so that will affect their decision somewhat. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, you may find the outside workers are not accepting of this deal. We don't know yet. Until right. that deal's accepted, we're, we're not sure where it's going to go. They could very well say no. That's not acceptable as well. Would you be, would you expect that you would be accepting of less than they got in their deal? Absolutely not. In fact, I don't know that we would be accepting of their deal at all. So you, you right now know what the deal is. You've, you've heard what they got. So you, you have a baseline to work with as you're going ahead right now. So I have heard from some of their members uh, speculation until we get the real numbers, we don't know until they're made public. Uh, once they're made public, then we will know. Uh, last thing, Eric, we've got to run. When, uh, if, if this doesn't go well for you, and we all hope it does, that the settlement can be reached, but if it doesn't go well, when could the HSR be on strike? So I would say the earliest, we still have to meet with a conciliator. We still have to try and uh, hopefully get back to the table and get, get serious about negotiations. Uh, so I would project it would be some, sometime around the end of September, mm. uh, early October, at the earliest. That is Eric Tuck. He is the president of the ATU Local 107. Eric, I appreciate you jumping on this morning. Thanks for this. Not a problem. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The next story we're going to do is not entirely new, but I was reminded of it a couple days ago. I was uh, on Twitter and uh, a good friend of this station and this show, uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, posted a tweet uh, reposting another tweet 
Uh, and he wrote, six months ago in an emotional TikTok video, Jerry Hegan, a dairy farmer from Dunville, Ontario, explained how he was forced to dump 30,000 liters of milk due to government regulations. Not only was that video deleted, we haven't heard from Jerry since. Now, I don't think the suggestion is that Jerry has been absconded and uh, kidnapped and taken away anywhere. But the idea, I think, is that there's been no other word. Uh, so, you know, maybe some pressure to not talk about this practice because it seems insane that in this country, because of government regulations, we have to have farmers dumping their product, dumping perfectly good food that people at a time when food is so bloody expensive that people could use. Let me, let me bring on the man who tweeted this, uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlois, the food professor. Sir, how are you this morning? Good, Scott. How are you? Well, I, look, I'm, I'm actually furious when I'm reminded about this because the idea that in this country, as I say, where so many people are having such a hard time paying for food, that we have regulations that essentially require farmers to waste food, mandated waste, that's, that's aggravating to the point of, I don't even know how to describe it. I know, I know. Just so you know, Scott, uh, Jerry's actually uh, hiding in my basement for the last <laughs> six months. <Yeah. laughs> I'm kidding. But actually, six months ago, I did, I did tweet his video saying that uh, it was Jerry's first and last video, knowing how... The dairy farming community would react. I, I, I can, I can only assume that Jerry has had conversations with, uh, with neighboring farmers and and the dairy farmers of Ontario. You, you just can't do that. It just looks bad because, I mean, the, the, this, this is the reality we have in Canada. We have supply management. It's an important policy, but boards will ask farmers to dump, and uh, we don't know much about it because you can actually dump inside your own barn if you look at the video uh jerry dumps thirty thousand liters away from cameras and uh and and eyes uh, because you can do that in canada in the united states you do see white lagoons because they often dump outside that's why in canada uh denial has worked for so many years and on twitter you've seen people spinning the story saying that jerry's incompetent Jerry doesn't know how to manage his herd. Uh, it is it is possible that he may have actually managed uh, badly managed his herd. But for, for, over the last 20, 30 years, you have seen the DFO, the dairy farmers out there, asking farmers to dump because demand for milk has gone down. Like COVID, for example, in 20, it happened in 2017. It happened in 2014. It, it, it does happen from time to time. Boards will call farmers, forcing them to dump, and that's exactly what happened to Jerry. So the supply management, which which keeps prices where they are, and as you say, it's an important policy, but nonetheless, I, it doesn't seem like any pol- every policy has maybe a strength and every policy has a, a weakness or a, a yep. something that was unexpected, maybe. I don't know if this is unexpected, but you, you try to do something that's going to help, but there are unintended consequences. This clearly has to be the unintended. It can't be intentional, right? This has to be an unintended consequence of this, what oh. this policy does. Farmgate waste is is inevitable. I think uh, you will always see uh, farmgate waste in dairy. Uh, you don't. You don't. The cows don't have taps. That's the reality yeah. of, of of dairy farming. I worked on dairy farms when I was a kid. I mean, that's basically how it works. 
here's here's the thing. A lot of people criticize supply management. They think that supply management is the problem. I actually think supply management is the solution, not the problem. We're the only country in the world with supply management. Why not use that to our advantage? You can actually create a strategic reserve for powdered milk, for example. Right now, the Game Dairy Commission actually has a strategic reserve for butter. Why not do that? There's actually a facility in Kingston owned by the Chinese, a dairy processing plant that uh, appears to have been idle for quite some time. Why not actually use that facility to process some, some of the excess milk so we can actually uh, repurpose uh, those products and, and support food banks, for example, mm. uh, or people in need. With supply management, we have a highly uh, organized, vertically integrated industry. Why not use that to our advantage? In the United States, they dump all the time, but that's their problem. It's farmers uh, work in a free market. And yes, uh, milk is typically cheaper. Dairy products are typically cheaper. But dumping is something that happens a lot in the U.S. In Canada, dumping is happening despite the supply management, and we all pay for that. Even if, and I love your point, even if, you know, we've capped how much can be commercially sold, so we can't, you know, whatever, surely somehow we could figure out an answer where this extra, as you say, goes to food banks or goes to overseas countries where they need it or something. Surely anything would be better than pouring it down the drain. Exactly. Now, I... It is my understanding that that dairy's video was the first time we ever saw a Canadian dairy farmer uh, filming himself dumping milk. I don't think it has ever happened in Canadian history. And a lot of people were shocked. I wasn't because I know it's a problem. Um, if, if And, of course, there's a petition out. Uh, I think uh, almost 40,000 Canadians have actually signed the petition to stop milk dumping. We can stop milk dumping in Canada. In America, they can't. We can in Canada. All you need to do, you make milk dumping illegal in Canada, and second, you charge the Canadian Dairy Commission with the task of organizing a strategic reserve and building a facility to take care of the excess milk from all provinces. And if you do that, then... And we're, th- no, we're not talking about 30,000 liters, sir. We actually think in Canada... We dump well over 300 million liters of Come milk on. every single year. Come oh, yeah. on. This is just, it's a tip of the iceberg. If you actually look at all boards' reports, in Ontario, the DFO was reporting uh, on excess milk every year until last year because last year they decided that they don't have to report anymore. This is a taboo subject. Boards don't want to talk about this because it, it makes them look bad. That's a, okay. So I was, as I say, I was antagonized when you came on now. Now you say 30 million. I mean, I'm furious, but it, it no, 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 300, 300 million. Oh, okay. Well, you're making it worse by the second here. Um, no, this is, <laughs> this is, but, but seriously, you know, that's a big problem. It's out Absolutely. again. It is outrageous because again, you know, I, I don't know where, where you are. I don't know what the situation is. I can tell you in Hamilton, we hear every single day about the people who are in need, the people who need food banks, the people who can't afford to buy groceries right now. This is, this is right in front of us that you've got a possible solution. Again, the farmers may not love that they have to give some of their milk away. I would get that. 
But I am positive that every single farmer who has to pour milk down the drain, if they're going to lose money anyway, would sooner at least go to some use. I have to believe that. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to suggest that uh, dairy farmers aren't moral. They are moral. Uh, But boards are politicizing the issue. They're just basically pretending the problem doesn't exist. It's like palm oil in butter making butter harder. Same issue. They don't want to talk about it. They're avoiding the issue. Let's talk about it. Mm. And the only way to do it is to actually have public opinion push dairy farmers so they can actually implement changes. It's a self-regulated industry. They regulate themselves. So we have to force them to look at this issue. That is uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There was a public meeting on the weekend in Ward 2 uh, to do with council's decision to put a tiny home encampment, a tiny home village, whatever you want to call it, on Strawn Street, right behind Leuna Station. And there was, uh, this was on Saturday afternoon uh, at Bonetto School, not a huge gym, but it was absolutely, absolutely jammed to the point where not everybody could get in. There were people out in the lobby waiting to get in uh, and couldn't get in. A lot of people, a lot of people who really wanted to have something to say about this and it got quite heated. It was, there were a lot of passionate opinions there about this. One of the big ones was about consultation and the fact that the residents of this area weren't consulted at all about this. Someone who spoke very passionate, there were a lot of people who had a lot of things to say, a lot of comments. Uh, Someone though who spoke very passionately, very eloquently about this, um, wanted to bring her on. Uh, Her name is Lorraine Phillips. She's a resident who lives right near where the encampment is now and where the tiny homes will be. She joins me now. Lorraine, how are you this morning? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Scott, how are you? I am terrific. Thanks for coming on and doing this. I appreciate it. Um, as I say, you were uh, you were one of the people who spoke and one of the people who, um, well, lots of people got lots of applause, but your, your point, points were hitting home. For you, as someone who lives in that area, what is it about the, the whole, the, either the concept or the process or whatever else, what is it about it that is so frustrating to you? Well, one of the things that um, I find frustrating as a resident here and uh, anyone else who might be in earshot of this radio station that may be listening that lives in the North End, I think one of the most frustrating things was the panel of people that spoke on Saturday, including our our city councillor, had said that they had consulted the homeless when it came to their, their plan for HATS, which is the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. And, I mean, and that's fine. Obviously, they, you know, they spoke to them for their opinion and, and their thoughts on what they'd like to see for some sort of uh, solution for the, for the homelessness in Hamilton. But they didn't consult anyone in the community, at least not to my knowledge. So, in other words, they consulted the homeless, but they didn't consult the taxpayers who actually live in this area on what they thought or what their opinions might have been on what could be a possible solution. So really, on Saturday, the meeting was just to tell us as a community that this is what they had planned. And they didn't 
it, there, there was no consultation for, for the people who live in the community, which I think is, is highly unfair um, because, you know, we have a voice. And I think as the caller who spoke just before me had said, it got pretty contentious. Well, yeah, and I was going to ask you whether, and I, I know your opinion on this, but what about the idea that, well, you know what, we've got to put this somewhere, and, you know, ultimately, if you complain about this, Lorraine, or anyone else in the North End, uh, you know, that gym was full of, not, some people will say that gym was full of number, nobody but NIMBYs. They just don't want it in their own backyard. What do you say to that? You know, you know I can understand why they would feel that way. I don't think anyone wants it in their backyard, to be honest, because I think some of the people had expressed that, um, you know, asked the people on the panel how would they like it if, if it was in their backyard, and, of course, there was no answer to that. Nobody really wants it in their backyard, so let's be honest. But we do know that the, the crisis of homelessness in the city and in other major cities, too, is not a new idea, and it's a very complex um, way to to look at things it's a very complex um issue that is not going to be solved overnight but the other thing that they did mention scott is the fact that they had a few other um, locations that they were considering and they named off some of them but again the communities weren't involved in any of those um those talks any of those discussions any of those possible solutions so there was no input from from the community on what they would like to see and let me let me be clear we don't want to see people living on the streets nobody wants to see anyone living on the streets and struggling that that is not the issue i believe there is true empathy and sympathy in our neighborhoods and in all neighborhoods nobody wants to see this explosion of homelessness that's happening in our city right now however there are there could be solutions and i do believe that you should involve the community when you're having these kinds of talks mm. because they have a voice as well but again that that didn't seem to happen so i think that's part of the reason why the community was so upset and very angry that this is now the solution that nobody really had um, any kind of say in. Yeah, one, one of the comments that I heard repeatedly, because I was there as well listening to you, uh, one of the comments I heard a lot was, uh, how is this consultation when you've made the decision and then come to talk to us? There was a lot, I heard a lot of frustration from people saying, great, you've made the decision and now you talk to us, this is kind of senseless. Exactly, exactly. Um, like I said, I think a lot of us actually went to that meeting thinking we were going to hear what they were proposing and what they were, what some of their, their possible ideas of solutions were. I think a lot of people were very upset when they found out that this was actually a meeting to tell us what they had decided for our community. And that's the thing. It's, it, this is the community that we live in, yet no one had a voice at the table to say yay or nay, I'm sure there are other solutions. Like I said, it's a very complex issue, something that will not be solved overnight. But to, um, pu- to put the solution out that they had, had, um, had suggested to us um, also violated a few of the actual recommendations that they had. And no one really spoke to that. All they really said was, yes, it violated, you know, some of the, the recommendation, recommendations that we had, 
Um, but, however, we're still going to go ahead with it anyway. Again, it's, we um, didn't have a seat at the table. So. It, it is, it was, there was definitely an immense amount of frustration. No question about that. And anger and uh, I don't know what other word people want to use. Rage, fury. I mean, all of that was there. Uh, Lorraine Phillip, who was not raging. She was very uh, even keeled, but direct and passionate. And I appreciate you coming on today and sharing some of that. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you very much, Scott. Take care. Uh, by the way, uh, we did reach out to Cameron Kretsch, the counselor who hosted it. We asked him to come on. We got no answer from his office at all. Still welcome to come on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've been hearing, no doubt, plenty over the last number of weeks about wildfires in Hawaii and in some parts of the States and more particularly in Canada. We have been... In some parts of this country, they have been battling wildfires now for a number of weeks. And this has led to pressure on banks for two reasons. One of them, a little more obvious than the other. The, the, the one that's obvious is a lot of people are saying banks need to cut customers who may have a mortgage with that bank a little bit of slack. If people's homes have burned, if they can't go to their jobs, if they can't pay bills, Banks need to be understanding and be gracious and show some mercy and allow these people some relief. And it seems as though most have. We'll get to the other cause in a second. Let me first bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, how are you this morning? I'm just fine, thanks. This, um, this seems like if you are a business, i.e. a bank, and your customers are in the state they're in right now with difficulties, as I say, homes gone or jobs gone or had to flee or whatever, this is the most obvious thing in the world that a bank or a business would do, right? To, if you want to keep your customers, you show some grace to them at a time like this. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't anything new in Canada's history. We've had floods, we've had tornadoes, we've had uh, massive snowfalls. And every time you have one of these big weather events, the banks quietly, quietly respond by being understanding. Uh, what that means is that if, if a customer, as you suggest, have, has some inability to pay a mortgage, they don't seize their home and hold a public auction and make a display of it. They try to refinance the deal and make things happen that way. So this isn't anything new for banks. They announced earlier this year that along with that kind of reaction, they're also going to do philanthropic things. In other words, they're going to make donations to shelters, keeping people safe during these situations, or rebuilding efforts for some public buildings. And so again, this isn't anything new for banks. Banks routinely donate a portion of their profits to the community, whether this is to build a new hospital or, in this case, to deal with the aftermath of a tragedy, this is quite routine. So the banks are there and the banks have listened. That's the first one. I said there were two things. That's the first one. And I mean, I would be shocked if they hadn't done that because it doesn't even seem to make sense for them. You want to keep your customers and regardless, that's okay. That's taken care of. The other side of this though, that I find so interesting is there is a lot of pressure now being put on banks by activists and others saying, you need to change the things in which you invest. You need to change your policies. You need to decarbonize. You need to not support oil. You need to all these kind of things. Is it really the pleasure? Should banks, should other businesses be feeling forced when they are investors, should they be feeling forced to do these things or should they say, no, we're, we're actually here because we are a business and our customers are expecting us to return dividends and 
we will do what we feel is best. Well, how much pressure should they feel? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a little harder one to to uh, uh, parse, if you will. Uh, what the what the activists are saying is, look, all of these wildfires that we're hearing about are due to climate change, and climate change at its heart has uh, high levels of carbon dioxide to blame. So if you banks are not doing something to reduce the carbon footprint, you're part of the problem. Therefore, you should uh, shuck all of your investments in the uh, uh, in the carbon-based industries, whether that's oil or gas, etc. And by the way, you should also then replace those with investments and loans uh, into the alternative energy field, so whether that's solar or, or wind power or what have you. Now, the banks have been doing this. The banks have been doing this for some time. And I guess the question is speed, one of speed. Uh, today, uh, 40 cents, uh, or try this again, for every dollar they invest in oil and natural gas, they're investing 40 cents in, all, in uh, uh, other types of energy projects. Uh, but in places like Europe, that parallel number is 80 cents, so uh, a much higher level of investment in other kind of energy projects in uh, Europe compared to Canada. Now, I can argue that's partly because Europe doesn't have an oil and natural gas industry. We do in Canada. It's a significant employer, and thus uh, what banks do is they don't actually make the investment themselves. It's people who go to the bank and say, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to do this project or that project. The banks can't create the projects. And again, to give you a sense of this, in Alberta, the provincial government there has actually put a ban on approving any alternate energy projects for the next six months. They're only looking at oil and gas projects as they try to rebuild the Alberta economy after, after COVID. So I'm not sure this is totally the bank's fault. The banks have been doing this. I understand the criticism that they haven't been doing enough of it. People who... Uh, uh, I hate to phrase it quite like this, but those people who have uh, drank the Kool-Aid on this, who really believe that the nation needs to decarbonize, wants them to decarbonize right now, do it immediately. I see this more as a transition. Um, electric cars are going to become more popular by the year 2035. Well, that's 12 years from now. Between now and then, we're still going to be burning a lot of gasoline to move us around. And even when we do transition to electric vehicles, no one is saying you need to take your old 1967 Mustang and turn it into an electric vehicle. We're still going to be burning gasoline and using oil and gas 20 years from now. So the banks need to get a blend. I think it's good to encourage them to do more in the alternate energy field, to do more in solar, do more in wind power. I think that's great to encourage them. But to think that they can just turn off the tap, if you will, on the oil and gas, I think that's a little naive. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroot School of Business. Uh, Thanks for coming on this morning. Really appreciate the time. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The governor general of this country plays an important role in our system, in our method of government. However, uh, so I'm not someone who will start this by saying we have to get rid of our governor general. We have to eliminate the position. I'm not saying that. But I do wonder why it is that at least our last couple and maybe more, well, actually more than that, because there's been now three or four who, when they land in this position, suddenly decide this is a open bar. This is a, an opportunity to spend, 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 and live in the lap of luxury. 
There were complaints about Julie Payette. There were complaints once upon a time about Adrian Clarkson. There were complaints about whatever. Now, Governor General Mary Simon, according to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who looked into this, racked up at least $2.7 million in travel expenses alone in 2022, her first calendar year on the job. I'm not arguing she shouldn't travel. Do we need to spend this kind of money for this position? Let me bring in Franco Terrazano, who is the Canadian director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great this morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, you're welcome. I, I appreciate you coming on. I don't object to her traveling and going to events. As I say, I think it's an important role. What I don't understand is how people who prior to taking on this role seem to be sensible, uh, salt of the earth people, honestly, most of them get into this position and all of a sudden it's, let's see how much money we can possibly spend. Yeah, it sure, it sure seems like they're actually going out of their way to stay in the nicest hotels, right? Ride the fanciest cars and spend the most amount of money possible on the finest cuisine. Well, I think there's two ways that this kind of ends up happening, this phenomenon that you're talking about. Number one is I really do feel like there is a sense of entitlement within Rideau Hall. So not just the governor general, but all of the governor general's assistants and employees and the bureaucrats that work under the governor general, right? Because when the National Post was the first newspaper to cover this story of Mary Simon's travel costs for a year costing almost $3 million. The media response from Rideau Hall wasn't to apologize, wasn't to say, sorry, Canadian taxpayers, we know you're struggling, we'll do better. No, they lashed out, right? They were upset that the newspaper was reporting on this. So I think there's a real sense of entitlement. The second reason that I think this happens is that there's been a lack of political oversight from all the parties, right, because this goes back decades, to actually hold the governor general and their travel budget accountable. So the political oversight should be coming from the Office of Foreign Affairs, which currently is Melanie Jolie's responsibility. Okay, so uh, according to your research, former Governor General Julie Payette, who was her predecessor, she spent $3 million in the 29 months leading up to the outbreak on VIP travel expenses. So Mary Simon has almost caught up to two and a half years in one year. And what I really don't get about this is, okay, so, so Mary Simon had this travel, this trip several months ago that included this uh, incredible on-flight catering tab that went into the six figures. Once that was exposed, I thought, all right, they'll, they'll, they'll bring this thing down and, you know, they'll, they'll bring it under some kind of control. It would be difficult. I mean, if you and I set out Franco to try and spend 2.9 million to 2.7 million dollars in travel, we would have a hard time, I think, getting to that number unless all of the things were like that. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary number. Oh, I wish that we could say challenge accepted and have the best year of our lives, but no, you're right. It's almost impressive if we wouldn't be crying right now because it's our money being wasted on this to spend almost $3 million in 12 months of travel. And I'm glad you brought up the Pyatt comparison, right? 29 months to spend almost $3 million. Now our, our current Governor General, Mary Simon, only 12 months to spend almost $3 million. Uh, and look, it, it wasn't like Payette was known as being a penny pincher, right? She had her own big spending scandals herself. Uh, but let me tell you how, how, how this is happening, how the big cab balloons the way it does. Number one is the extravagance, right? Almost $100,000 on fancy airplane food like beef wellington, duff pork tenderloin, beef capaccio, all on an airplane, right? There's the $71,000 spent on ice limos in Iceland. 
You've got them staying in these big hotels like the Ritz-Carlton in Berlin, the Great Scotland Yard in London, the Emirates Tower in Dubai. But here's how the tab really balloons, okay? Here's how it is. It balloons because of the extended entourage that the Governor General takes with her on these trips. When she went to Dubai for Expo 2020, that week-long trip in the Middle East, she was with 30 people. In Iceland, 15 people. They had two comms people with the Governor General, her Director of Communications and her Manager of Strategic Communications. And I can't believe neither one of them said, um, boss, maybe we shouldn't be spending uh, more on luxury travel than what the average Canadian makes in an entire year. So that's where the tab really ballooned, the extravagance, but also the huge entourage that Canadian taxpayers are sending every time they fly abroad. And I'm not, again, uh, I would never suggest that the Governor General should travel by herself or should not have some security or even a communications person, but uh, it, it seems, again, um, I mean, is the world dying to see Mary Simon? Do we need to have this kind of number of people to 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 either security or whatever. Like, again, I just, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to come across saying she should spend nothing. She should travel alone. She should go on, you know, the, the bargain basement airline, none of that stuff. But boy, I just, by the same token, I just don't know if it has to be the exact opposite where everything is at the grandest scale possible because you're representing the king doesn't mean you are a king. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Because you're, just because you represent a king or queen doesn't mean you have to live like one, and it doesn't mean that you should be living like one at the Canadian taxpayers' expense. Um, look, I, I'm, I, I like the way that you kind of frame this entire conversation because the way I see it is regardless of where you stand on the question of whether or not you support the monarchy, regardless of where you stand, I think you should be able to come together as Canadians and say, okay, this type of wasteful spending is doing us no good. Right, whether you support the monarchy, whether you're against it, I think we can all agree that we don't need a governor general spending $100,000 on airplane food during a week-long trip. Right, That doesn't advance Canada's priorities. I think there's no way that anyone can make an argument, a sound argument, that it does. Now, I'll go a step further, and, and of course this is our views, but i but I got to put this on the table. I don't think the representative of the king or queen to Canada needs to be going to Expo 2020 in Dubai. And you know what? If the Governor General in Rideau Hall wants to prove me wrong, I am happy to hear their case. Because Canadians aren't even getting a case right now from the office of the Governor General. They're essentially just saying, well, look, we have to do this. Okay, why? Because if the King or Queen wants the representative to go to Expo 2020 in Dubai, let them pay for it. You know, that's our point of view. And if they have a different point of view, put it on the table. Because I think the one thing we need from Rideau Hall is more transparency mm. and some better explanations of how they're spending our money. I, I think, and I know she's not a politician per se, but I, public figures, I, I, I think we are now at the point, honestly, where public figures, if they are going to travel for something that is like that, or even with the mayor here in Hamilton, when she went to Italy on a, on a trip with a number of people recently, there should be some outline of what was the benefit of this. Explain why you were going. I'm open to listening. I'm open to believing it. I'm open to being receptive to, oh, there's a benefit here. But yes, I, I don't know that we're any longer at the point where we can simply say, I went and it was great and I really helped and great things happened, And but I'm not going to tell you what it is. But, you know, for some people, maybe that's uh, maybe that is sufficient. Uh, Franco Terrazano, I wish we had more time. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Thanks for doing this. 
Thanks for having me on today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. About a month from now, a little less than a month from now, there is going to be the Sun Life Walk to Cure Diabetes. It's uh, like so many other things uh, for so many other events, so many other fundraisers for um, illnesses and conditions and health challenges. It's it's an important thing. It, it really is. Uh, Miriam Dos Anjos is a senior development officer. Um, she is uh, she is with her son, Mason, who I believe, Miriam, help me out here. I believe he has type 1 diabetes. I believe that's what's got you into this. Is that right? Absolutely. Good morning. Good morning. Mason was diagnosed when he was 16 months old. And how did they, how did you recognize back then that something was needing to be looked at? We took him to the doctors the day before his diagnosis. He wasn't feeling well. He was lethargic, extreme thirst. Um, and the doctor said he was okay. And the next morning he was unresponsive and unconscious. Wow. Wow. And so did you have any idea? Are you prior to this? Did you have any experience with diabetes? Did you know that that might be one of the things or was that a complete surprise when you heard that? It was a complete surprise. No family history, no knowledge. So the, the idea that why do we need, and I'm not suggesting we don't, but why do we need to have a walk for this? What's the, what, what is hope to, is it for fundraising mostly? Is it to raise awareness of this? What, what is the driving issue behind doing this? I think there's a combination. Um, JDRF is celebrating the 30th anniversary of the walk. So we're celebrating 30 years of progress, commitment, community, um, improving the lives of people affected with type 1 diabetes. And there are over 300,000 Canadians that are diagnosed with T1. How, I mean, it seems to me, and, and again, tell me that I'm uh, getting this wrong here if I am, but it seems to me that we we have come an awful long way in diabetes. I mean, there was a time, uh, and it wasn't all that long ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe, when if you had type 1 diabetes, essentially you didn't play sports, you didn't do anything, you were seen as very, very, very damaged goods. That seems to have changed dramatically. Still a, a ways to go, but it seems to have changed dramatically. Am I right? Absolutely. We've come a very long way, um, and we're still um, advocating for government support of research, new therapies, ensuring new therapies come to market to better serve our type 1 community. We're focusing on research for a cure, technology availability, nutrition, support. It's a total well-being, um, and it all helps. Um, everyone affected with type 1 diabetes. The technology, uh, I'll say this, the technology that I've seen, and I have not seen at all, obviously you have, the technology that exists now is amazing though. Yeah, I mean, it really is the difference in where we come, the, the technology to deal with this is unbelievable to, that, that can help. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's life-changing. Um, it helps manage um, my son's type 1 diabetes with his pump and his um, continuous glucose monitor. Um, these are all tools in better management. It's still a lot of work um, and a lot of sleepless nights, but we have come so far and there's still a long way to go. Do we still have to do finger pricks or because, you know, a lot of people and it's, the, it's a weird thing because, I mean, obviously there's challenges and health issues and other things with type 1 diabetes, but so many people over the years 
maybe not grasping the reality and the entirety of what it's all about have said, oh, I could, the one thing I would never want to have to do is the finger pricks. Have, have we at least reached a point where we've found something that eliminates that? Um, with the CGM, there are a few on the market. We still do finger pricks to ensure if uh, Mason is having a hypoglycemic low or he's having a high. We just want to ensure Um Technology is great, but it's not foolproof. So mm. you always have to have a backup plan. So there are um, families that don't have access as well to CGM. So finger poking and pricking is the only way to go. Um, again, there's a long way to go, but we have come a long way. Uh, and I read a piece uh, about you guys and, and, you know, that technology you've said, I believe, if you were quoted correctly, has said over a number of times that it has saved Mason's life. Absolutely. Uh, Mason doesn't feel his highs or lows. Um, and the continuous glucose monitor will alert me in the middle of the night if he goes low. If he goes low and it's not detected, it can become life-threatening. Right. Well, and listen. Mason only feels, his, he only feels his lows when he's already very dangerously low. It is, uh, it, you know, the, the, your story and many, many others, um, it uh, validates why this is important. Uh, September the 24th, uh, the Sun Life Walk to Cure Diabetes. Uh, people can go online, jdrfwalk.ca, if they want to look this up and participate or donate or just become a little more aware of what is, uh, what is going on. Miriam Dos Angeles, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, and we hope to see everyone there. That's, uh, it's something to keep in mind for sure. JDRFwalk.ca if you want to be part of that. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.